I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Look what free speech has gotten you, right? And, and if free speech is going to bring a Hitler to power, are you still going to defend the rights of those people to speak? If you talk about the things that affect your daily life. The secret to being a good actor. I don't really care, actually, whether Britain remains Britain. His dad was actually murdered in front of him. Marine Le Pen has changed the Pont National. If it's like kind of like a documentary investigative reporting serialized true crime, it often gets into questions about the justice system or the media. In an uncertain world, there's always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday 15, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate 15 minutes to vote. Good question. Really good question. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem... said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello, and before we start the show properly, just a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, Mid-Atlantic has been running for some four years now. And um, the show gives me great joy, allows me to uh, speak to people with great minds, pundits and progressives about the issues of the day. If you take something away from uh, listening to Mid-Atlantic, please, (laughs) especially if it's positive, please go on to iTunes and write us a review. We have precious few reviews. I don't normally ask and beg for them like I do in other podcasts that I do. But please go on to your local iTunes and please rate us. If you think we're worth five stars, um, give us that. But it really would mean a lot to me. It also means that other listeners, at least other potential listeners... Uh, will get to know about the show. Long-time listeners will know that Mid-Atlantic is part of the Agora Podcast Network. Every October, we run a thing called Agrophobia, and it returns this month. It's spooky, macabre, and strange fiction and non-fiction stories that celebrate the spirit of Halloween. If you want to go and listen to to their shows, uh, go to the Agora Podcast Network, or you can... uh, Go to the Gorok Podcast Network via iTunes and each Friday 
there will be a new show so it's going to be four shows this month so if you're into uh, spooky and macabre things uh, this is this is the month for you on the agora podcast network and that's agorapodcastnetwork.com but now on with a uh, new show Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I am Royfield Brown in San Diego. Today I'm joined by wine expert and writer Doug Levy in the North Bay. And I'm also joined by map geek, pedant and irascible Englishman John Elledge in London. Um, first off, just before we even go on to um, our topics this week, Doug, we have to ask, how are things uh, where you are? Because you're very close to where the Californian wildfires are. This has been a spectacular disaster, and it's uh, affected people in ways that I, I don't think we could have I- imagined. Uh, the firestorm that happened Sunday night was whipped by 70 mile an hour winds, which is more than any reasonable projection would have would have made and that's why we had about 50,000 people displaced more than 5,000 homes uh, heavily damaged or completely destroyed uh, the number of dead is mounting and the effects are going to be long-lasting and also far-reaching all through even downtown San Francisco there's heavy smoke or has been heavy smoke at various times this week depending on the way the wind blows and that's unhealthy so mm. there's immediate effects there's long-term effects and it's just it's it's scary and mind-boggling and incredibly sad for so many people whose lives are being completely interrupted is there any sign that the fires are abating um, not abating, although yesterday the winds calmed enough that the firefighters were able to get a little bit of containment, uh, but we're still talking about you know, 10, 15, 20% containment around the big fires. This is going to go on for several days, if not well, really weeks, before the fires are out. Um, the biggest concern is um, the winds are going to shift again, and it will only take another shift of the winds to blow those fires across another fire break and that could be really bad so it's it, we're a long way from out of the woods hmm. thoughts and feelings are with everybody affected with that tragedy and let's move on what is your backup plan for eu citizen in case of a no deal yes well as i say we're looking at the um we want you to stay that's, that's the basic message. We want to ensure that you can stay in the UK. Why can you not sit down here and say, of course you will be able to stay under any circumstance? Well, this is, I'm going to get a bit technical here, Ian, and I'm sorry about must. that. Yeah, But the point is that the, um, there are certain things, certain rights that pertain to somebody who's an EU citizen here in the UK by virtue of being an EU citizen. But my overall message is I want EU citizens to stay here in the UK and I want to be able to guarantee those rights and to be able to enable people to stay. We're not going to we're not going to be throwing EU citizens who are currently here in the UK out of the UK in the future. Um, do you if there was a Brexit vote now would you vote Brexit because you you voted r- remain in the referendum have you changed your mind? Well I I I don't answer hypothetical questions but what I well, I voted Remain. Um, I voted Remain for good reasons at the at the time, but circumstances move on. I mean, I think the important thing now is that I think 
we should all be focused on delivering Brexit Absolutely. and delivering the, the best but deal. What, but you're I, asking when, me to say, how would I vote in a vote now against a different background, hmm. a different international background, different economic background, but you potentially? Tell me that you, would vote you can't tell me now. In a week, that has seen Theresa May dodge the question as to whether she would vote for Brexit if there was another referendum today. We ask. Was Jeremy Corbyn right when he said the Tories are more interested in fighting amongst themselves than solving problems? Over to you in, a, I'm presuming, a grey, damp London, John Elledge. Yeah, that's about the size of it. I mean, obviously he's right. The entire problem, well not the entire problem, but a large chunk of the problem with Brexit is that Brexit was obviously always a catastrophic, catastrophically stupid idea that, that stems from... from uh, national exceptionism that move it with exceptionally uh, weak roots. But nonetheless, uh, one of the problems we are seeing with the Brexit process as it develops at the moment is certainly that it is not being conducted as if it's just a great national mission, let alone a national crisis. It's being conducted entirely as a matter of internal Conservative Party policy. So it would be entirely possible, I think, uh, to get some sort of deal that would be acceptable to the European Union and probably to, to many of the 48%, uh, sorry, the 52% who voted for Leave, and probably was a large number of the 48% who voted for Maine. If we could come up with a system whereby we just had, we basically stayed inside the single market and the customs union and had slightly more control of our immigration. Now, like, it's... <laughs> That would break with the, fun, the four fundamental freedoms of the European Union, which is not 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 ideal. Don't get me wrong, but money talks. If if we wrote them a large enough check, we do have some leverage there. We could probably get that. So why why is that not happening? Because every time anyone in the Conservative Party starts talking about uh, writing the European Union a large check, there will be Brexit ultras like Jacob Rees-Mogg who will stand up and announce it's a betrayal and say that we're actually better off going for a no-deal Brexit, which means taking the economy off a cliff. Doug, um, how as how did you view as an American the Theresa May's performance in the Tory Party conference? Obviously, one of the big differences between the US and the UK, our party conferences are every year. Yours are when there's only an election cycle. Um, obviously, keynote addresses are incredibly important. Hers was somewhat of a catastrophe. How was it viewed this side of the Atlantic? Honestly, I don't think Americans are paying that much attention because we've got our own uh political mess of our own to deal with. But those of us who are paying attention, uh, those of us who are paying attention to what's happening across the pond are seeing uh, perhaps a miniature version, at least from our perspective, miniature version of what's happening here. Uh, you've got a leader who appeared to be cocky going into the process and not recognizing where people's sentiments were. So she created a negative story about herself. John, I saw um, kind of a really interesting article actually on your, on your magazine, uh, The New Statesman, and it said that Theresa May should have chosen an idiot to launch a leadership election against her. Um, is that what she really should have done? Is it really as simple as that? She needs to cement her leadership and she needs to slap down Philip Hammond. Discuss. I mean, like, as, as I recall that particular article, I think the argument was 
she should have chosen, she would have chosen an idiot to launch a, a leadership bid against her. And there could be no finer idiot for the job than Grant Shapps. Like if she could have chosen her enemy, it would have been him. <laughs> because while he is, uh, remain, he's, he's very much a remainer because he's from his, his constituencies in, in uh, Watford, I believe, or Hatfield, somewhere, somewhere in Hertfordshire. Um, but he's, he's not a popular man. Within the party, because he was uh, he was a former chair of the Conservative Party, a job in which he impressed precisely no one. Outside the parliamentary party, he's a largely anonymous figure, except among those who are aware of his previous work and therefore know what a ridiculous human being he was. He's, he has a past in which he uh, went by a number of different names in different business ventures thus leading to all sorts of entirely predictable jokes. When Grant Shapps said he had a list of 30 names, people responded with, yes, but how many of them are Grant Shapps? Uh, the other thing is, if you, <laughs> like, if you really look into it, he's done all sorts of ridiculous things. Like He was once caught like having a go at people who mocked him on YouTube at three in the morning, uh, but clearly meant to log into a different account. So, so there were these comments left there saying things that I think this is an unreasonable slur, and Grant Chaps is actually one of my favourite politicians. Grant Slap, Chaps, 3.04am. It's not, it's, it's not like a particularly serious... I promise you this actually <laughs> happened. I'm not just making this up. Um, so he's not a particularly serious figure and if there was anyone who was who's going to fail to kind of uh light the fire here then it would have been him that said like there is this old saying you know he who he who wields the knife shall never wear the crown it, that that's certainly been true in tory party leadership contests historically when like they've tended to be kicked off by these kind of either sort of deliberate stalking horse candidates or, or people who think they've got a chance and turn out not to have uh so it's not at the realm of possibility that a no hoper like shaps could have actually triggered uh, a, a contest which would have which would have been caused problems for theresa may but i think ultimately he just didn't have the friends in the parliamentary party mm. um this week Doug, uh, Theresa May went on to LBC and uh, she was asked the question directly, if there's a referendum today, would you vote for Brexit? And she basically said no by avoiding uh, the question or avoiding giving a very clear answer. Could you similarly see um, your president um, avoiding such, uh, a, such a poignant question? Would he even have the political chops to do such? And then also coming back on to Britain and Theresa May, um, what does that say for Brexit that Britain is making the most uh, monumental decision it's made at least since World War Two? And we know the, the prime minister doesn't believe in it. Well, I think her avoidance of that question or avoidance of the answer is a stunning uh, lack of leadership. I think that even if you don't like the answer you're going to give, as a leader, you have an obligation to. Now, with regard to whether the current U.S. president would answer a question directly, I think we know from what we've seen so far that he probably wouldn't. He would probably say something similar to what he said about North Korea a few days ago, where just wait and see, or time will tell, or any one of those other pat lines that come out that are really not appropriate for the head of state to use. John, just for uh, more for our American listeners and for our listeners around the globe, because we have a lot of listeners in Canada and in Australia, could you, could you just uh, set up uh, who exactly Philip Hammond is and, and basically um, his vision 
for Britain um, vis-a-vis Brexit. And then let's discuss his beef, shall we say, with the Prime Minister. God, I don't know. Um, Phil Hammond is basically your accountant. Uh, he's he's a sort of slightly like he's 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 I've known him I've heard him referred to variously as spreadsheet Phil or also as box office Phil because he's such a terribly bad <laughs> uh, public speaker. Um, but yeah, he's, he's the the Chancellor of Exchequer, he's the Finance Minister, um, and the difficulty he's got is he was a he was a Remainer pre-referendum, but he was also previously quite a, a close ally of Theresa May's, I believe. Um, the difficulty he's Got is that I don't think the 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 lines he's pushing are, are talking about like the importance of sort of keeping keeping the borders open and the customs union and so on. It's and then the expense that our, our No Deal Brexit would have. He's not pushing those lines for ideological reasons because he's suddenly massively enthusiastic about the European Union. It's literally his job to do the best he can for the public finances. That is the purpose of the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, and, and, you know, a, a Brexit deal or a, a lack of Brexit deal, just kind of falling out of the single market is going to literally mean companies relocate from the UK because suddenly there's no point having part of your supply chain in the UK when bits of it in France or Germany or Poland. So, so we see companies move abroad. We, it will be harder for, for goods to get in there. Like literally there will be lorries queuing up outside ports so that they can have all their paperwork checked probably. You know, it's going to be, an, and, and you will have to spend money on, on increasing customs ports and new regulatory agencies. From a public finance perspective, Brexit, a hard Brexit particularly, is going to be a complete disaster. So Philip Hammond, as Chancellor, is, is sort of trying to steer the government away from that. The problem he's got is that a lot of people in, it's the, problem, it's the same problem I mentioned earlier, a lot of people in, in the Parliamentary Conservative Party will shout betrayal every time anyone tries to soften the line even slightly. It's therefore completely impossible to, to push anything other than a hard Brexit because for, for internal Tory party reasons. It's not about what's good for the country, it's about positioning for the next Tory leadership election, which everyone's expecting to happen within the next couple of years. So, you know, spreadsheet Phil, who's not a sort of natural uh, Brutus figure, he's not a sort of natural uh, political backstabber, I think, is is finding himself in this position where he's, he's, that there are prominent people not only calling for him to, to, to resign, like the, 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 the journalist Julia Hartley Brewer, who's um, a, a, a character, let's put it that way, was earlier suggesting that he should be tried for treason because of his stance on some of this, which is which is obviously a ridiculous thing to say, but it kind of does give you a sense of quite how the temperature has got in this country. Doug, should Theresa May quite simply reshuffle her cabinet, um, isolate Philip Hammond or just get rid of him completely, pack it full of Brexiteers, and go boldly on into a future not knowing what the hell is going to happen. That's an interesting idea. I think that the equivocation has to end one way or the other because you can't lead a country the size of Great Britain without a definitive strategy and direction. And the voters made the decision, I think, on this program, we probably agree it was not the best decision. But either figure out a way to get out of it or go forward and implement it. You kind of 
aren't going to win anything by playing around in the middle and shaking up the cabinet's probably the way to do that one way or the other. Okay, John, let's just try and end up with you a minute. Let's wait for this fire truck to, to go by. I thought you were going to ask him to end on a cheerful note there. I really thought you were going to end like, there's no cheerful note. There's never a cheerful <laughs> note. I mean, like, it's, just, it's not in my personality, obviously, but particularly at the moment, it's really difficult to see a way out of this mess. Um, and we're just sort of edging ever closer to the cliff edge while, while, while the right wing of the Conservative Party cheer us on. It's terrifying. But talking about this cliff edge, right, because I think the fire truck's actually gone by now. Um, the one thing about this de- slightly delayed Brexit is that it allows uh, the, mi- the financial markets, the money markets, actually to adjust, doesn't it? You could argue, right, you could, you could argue that this, if you're going to have a Brexit of any severity, this is maybe the smartest way of doing it. You keep inching incrementally towards it um what those financial institutions that need to relocate their head offices they've got years to do it they've got years to adjust it's not as if they can completely close down the london offices um the 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 inflow of um the great and the good um it you know kind of gets stemmed um immigration of um, you know workers from Eastern Europe kind of get stemmed as well, and then by the time you actually trip into Brexit, um, we're all kind of used to it. You could argue that this is the smartest solution going forward, in, so we don't have an an, an economic collapse. So your argument is that the government—it's not my argument. No, I'm just no, saying you it. could construct your argument, argument is that the government strategy is clever because it will make us poorer more slowly and gradually so that we just get used to it. Well, I, I think I'm exactly saying that because everybody knows, anybody who is really smart, not even just smart, who is uh, lucid and cognizant on this matter knows that what Brexit will do, it will um, blunt growth at the margin. So whether the economy grows in the next 10 years by... 2.1% with Brexit, it's going to grow by 1.8%. You're not, you're not going to feel that year in, year out until you get to, um, you know, year 10, right? And then when there are gleaming towers in Dublin and not in London, right? But if, but instead of having an utter collapse of the economy immediately after Brexit, let's say if we said, right, Brexit tomorrow, if, if a thing could be possible, you would have a run on the, a massive run on the pound and the economy would probably shrink by, you know, upwards of 5% within, within 18 months. This way, you know, Greek style. This way, you actually, uh, you soften whatever Brexit landing you, you, you're going to have. I mean, a couple of things on that. Firstly, I think you're, you're mistaking, uh, not me, sir. I'm just playing devil's advocate. I'm not. I'm not owning. This you are. Theory. You are. I'm you just, own this theory. This is your theory. You own the theory. Um, firstly, it, <laughs> it's sort of mistaking sort of um, incompetent stumbling for deliberate strategy. I just don't think anyone's thinking about it in that sense. Secondly, I think it's still very plausible. We're going to tumble out without a deal. Not you know. We might that might not happen. Maybe maybe something will break. Will, will shift. But at the moment, that feels entirely plausible which is terrifying because that does mean sort of a proper 
crunch, probably not just for us, also for several other countries in Europe, and most notably the Republic of Ireland. But also it's just, it feels like it's such a ridiculous ambition that we've got to a point in our history where, where you know, we're saying we have to do this even though it's going to hurt, so what's the way we can kind of make sure we can disguise the pain best? You know, if if, if, if we were seriously talking about it being 1.8% growth rather than 2.1% growth, that's that's okay, we could cope with that, but it's probably going to be bigger than that. And also, wages have been flatlining for a decade. People have not had a pay rise in 10 years or more, effectively. We are now less productive in this country than Italy. We're already sinking down the international league tables and were before Brexit was a thing. Probably, you know, it's probably one of the reasons Brexit became a thing is because people were sort of generally dissatisfied with, with living standards and the way they had failed to improve and the way all growth had come from an increase in personal debt and house prices. So it's, it, it's quite difficult to conceive of what is still effectively a rich country sort of dropping out of that first league and, and tumbling down into the, the next. But it does happen. In the 19th century, Argentina was as rich as anywhere in Europe. And now it's very much not. I'm not saying it is that bad. I'm just saying I don't think we can rule out the possibility that it might be. Seventh biggest economy after World War Two was Argentina. Yeah, and it's yep. it's just, is it even the, tw- the top 20 now? I think it might just sneak in, but it's a lot, lot smaller. Living standards are significantly lower than, than Europe. And it's, it, this, this might be the point at which we stop being a significant power. Which is, you know, maybe, maybe that'll be better for us with national mental health, given some of the post-imperial delusions we all clearly suffer from. But I just wish it wasn't going to have to make us poorer for us to get over that stuff. Right. Talking about national mental health and delusions, let's turn to the other side of the Atlantic and talk about Donald J. Trump. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. President Trump engaged in yet another social media feud over the weekend, this time with a leading member of his own Republican Party. Bob Corker may now be a retiring Republican senator from Tennessee, but his criticism of President Trump is ramping up. 
The latest escalation came in a New York Times interview, with Corker asserting Mr. Trump's reckless threats toward other countries could set the U.S., quote, on the path to World War III. He added he knows for a fact that every day at the White House, it's a situation of trying to contain the president. Of his Senate Republican colleagues, Corker said, the vast majority of our caucus understands what we're dealing with here. Corker previously took issue with Mr. Trump's response to the violence in Charlottesville, Virginia. And last week, he had this to say. I think uh, Secretary Tillerson, Secretary Mattis, and uh, Chief of Staff Kelly uh, are those people that help separate our country from chaos. Doug, why is your president fighting with, um, let's say, let's start with Senator Bob Corker? Because I think if there's a, a theme to this show, it's um, prime ministers, presidents, head of the executives versus. So it was Theresa May versus the Tory party. Why is your president calling out Senator Bob Corker on Twitter. Discuss. Beats the heck out of me. And I wish that was not the case. I wish that I could somehow discern any logic or sense to it. It is, at least as far as any of the wise people that I know can see, an example of our president shooting himself in the foot uh, the Republicans just barely have a majority in the Senate. And although Senator Corker has not been a fan of the president, he has been a solid Republican for his entire career. Uh, the president's not going to get any legislation passed without every Republican being in his camp. And he has now attacked Senator Corker. He's attacked uh, the head of the tax writing committee. He's uh, attacked the uh, the Senate majority leader. He's going after people who he whose support he desperately needs. I think what we're seeing though is we have a president who still does not understand the Constitution of the United States and how the government actually works. He seems to think that he has ultimate authority when in fact we have co-equal branches and. Nothing is going to happen, well, nothing except military action can happen by the president's action alone. And we may very well see four years of nothing getting done. Um, John. Hello. Um, I'll tell you what's quite nice, John, actually hearing the hubbub in the background there. Sounds like you're in a busy newsroom. Very atmospheric. This is, that's, that's quite passive aggressive, but okay. Like, <laughs> right. not, not at all. It was just like totally an observation. <laughs> <laughs> um, is the leader of the free world leading us all to World War Three? I mean, that's what Senator Bob Corker said. Maybe. I mean, I'm. I. I. I, I don't think it's. It's. I, I still think the odds are against, but I think the fact that we're even able to ask that question and it not be sort of an obvious, ridiculous question is 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 quite frightening and depressing. I think there is you know, there's been a lot of noise on 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 Twitter where I basically live this week, 
about that that website's uh, failure to kind of moderate its users properly, um, because you know, or a completely different uh, scandal in, in the middle of the sort of Harvey Weinstein affair, it, it, it briefly blocked the actress Rose McGowan. Uh, in the middle of the point where she was kind of talking about the abuse she'd received, and I don't think it was because she was talking about that, but it's just, it just feels like such a Twitter thing to do, to kind of, they let the Nazis hang out there, but, you know, the minute a woman starts talking about, like, her experience of abuse, suddenly she's gone. It's just, it's so in character for that particular bloody website. Um, but the most frightening thing about Twitter is that it does let Donald Trump continue to tweet. For, you know, I'm sure for some business reasons, it's the most relevant thing about Twitter is the fact that it has these sort of live broadcasts from, from the president's brain at four in the morning when he wakes up and something's annoying him. The difficulty is it's quite difficult to, it's quite easy to rile him on Twitter. And it, it like we did here in, in the run-up to last year's election, it was, I, I think Hillary Clinton herself even used the argument that, you know, do we really want to give the red, red button to a man who can be um, made angry by a mean tweet? And it's, you know, we're not, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that we, the world could end because someone is meeting Donald Trump on Twitter and so he launches a nuclear first strike. Again, I don't think that's likely, but the fact this is even a plausible possibility is, is well, it would be keeping me up at night were I not much more scared of Brexit at the moment. Doug, is what we're seeing, right, let, 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 let's, let's wind back. What road Trump into power was saying that America needed to put its own interests first. Now, me being a student of history since 1945, I think America's put its uh, economic and military interests absolutely first. But still, go with me on this, right? So, America needs to put its own interests first. And the interests of nation states throughout the world are for them all to take responsibility for their own, excuse the American vernacular I'm going to use now, for their own shit, Right. So let's question NATO. Let's question NAFTA. Let's question uh, the EU, etc., etc. Right. Surely all that's happening here then is that we're having a certain amount of turbulence where we are deconstructing all of these um, ridiculous supernatural, sorry, supernational uh, bodies. We go through this. Uh, we'll be fine. Uh, give it a couple of years. We'll have deconstructed international um, relations. Everything will be fine. And we, and whilst we're at it, then we'll deconstruct the, uh, the the deep state of America. It's all good, isn't it? We you just expect this certain amount of pushback from uh, the Republican establishment when the president is charting a bold new foreign relations course. I think the problem is that those supranational structures, as imperfect as they may be, have served an important purpose since World War II, certainly. And the deconstruction of them uh, puts a lot of questions out there if anyone decides to do something bad. Uh, you know, NATO has kept the Soviet Union and now Russia in some level of check. And if NATO is weaker, what will Russia do differently? Um, in Asia, we have alliances that have helped manage 
the ongoing conflict between North and South Korea, among others. And if those alliances are no longer secure, what will happen if there is an attack by anybody? Uh, the other thing is that uh, the president is essentially destroying the U.S. credibility. His comments about the Iran nuclear deal, uh, suggesting that we would terminate that deal, basically mean that anybody, any country considering going into a new treaty with the United States can't be confident that the United States will hold to its word. And that has actually been what has maintained peace for such a long time. The U.S. has signed treaties and honored them. If we stop doing that, we certainly become just like the places we criticize, and we have global instability. I don't see that as something to recover from quickly. But, John, there's American exceptionalism. America isn't like other countries. It does, does, doesn't need other countries as long as it has its nukes. And there was the report saying that Trump said he wanted a tenfold increase in uh, nuclear peripheral, uh, nuclear stockpile building in, in, in the States. America. He wants the biggest. He wants the biggest nuclear arsenal. He's spoken to the experts and they've said it's the biggest nuclear arsenal they've ever seen. It's actually, did you see his electoral college majority? <laughs> well, there is, there is a certain, um, I was going to, I was going to give, use the word logic. And uh, it's a, it's a, a logic which will, I believe ultimately, I think we will believe will lead us back into a situation where it's the 1930s, but with nuclear weapons. But, but if at the heart of your foreign policy, you believe that um, America is only ha hamstrung by its uh, international obligations. And kind of interestingly, Doug, I was going to come back on something which you said that, yes, it's, I think it's without doubt that uh, the underpinning of the, of, the, of, of the global system has been America since 1945, but it's also been America acting in partnership with its European allies and with its Far East Asian allies, etc., etc. But without wanting to mix up the geopolitical, you know, the military alliances with the economic um, alliances and with global kind of free trade, yes, or bilateral treaties, but fundamentally global free trade, that the, the, the economic wheels have come off um, slowly but surely in the last 30 years. So something has gone wrong, you know, and, and I think us on the left have to, um, you know, have to realise that. That's the reason why we've had this angry lurch, whether it is just um, a knee-jerk reaction, you know, kind of from the right. So, go. I, I mean, I definitely think you're right to say something has gone wrong. I think actually, I mean... It's, the number of episodes of this this podcast in which we've ended up talking about Brexit and Trump because they are overwhelmingly the biggest things happening in in the UK and US respectively, uh, and I think they are certainly part of the same phenomenon. This kind of this kind of pull back into identity politics, this sort of rise of of, sort of new nativism and sort of the fear of uh, of international cooperate, uh, cooperation and so on. Um, and you can see that in different ways in a lot of other countries. It's, I think we can, it, 
we, we sometimes talk as if none of this stuff is a problem in continental Europe because it, the, 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 the hard right option has not quite won. Well, you know, Marine Le Pen still made it to the second round and got a third of the vote, you know, an actual fascist. In, in the, in the Austrian presidential election, the, the hard right candidate, who was basically a Nazi, got like 48%. And, and you were meant to be, and you know, everyone's a breathed a sigh of relief because, because because they didn't no, win, but John, you know, still, it's not you know that's not a sign that things are good. Um, however, I do take exception to your idea that this is sort of a wake up cry just for the left. I think a lot of the the problems that created this are actually it's it's this is the delayed result of of the crash. It's like you can people will accept a lot of stuff if they're getting richer. But if people are getting, if life is getting harder, if people are getting poorer, then they're getting out unhappy and they're going to look for someone to blame. And the people they're going to blame are going to be the people who don't look like them or don't speak the same language. So, you know, I think that the left have to deal with it as much as anyone else, but I don't think it's the left. And I think it's important to look at uh, when we say there's a problem, of course there's a problem, but I think the problem is incorrectly diagnosed by a lot of folks. The problem has been, I mean, I look around here and I see millionaires everywhere, but I also see vast amounts of poverty. The problem is that we have created global economic power that has left a lot of people behind. The gap between the haves and the have-nots has gotten so much wider. That's the problem we have to address. How can that problem be addressed with this current administration? Let's just wind wind back onto um, a more specific uh, point. Let's point the finger at the person who's in the White House right now. He said he was going to bring coal mining jobs. So he's actually he's he identified that problem. Right. Let's give the man some credit. Right. He pointedly um, identified that problem um, and then gave form to that through the rhetoric of kind of Steve Bannon. So it's this white nativism. Okay, And people went, yes, I cannot afford my health care, I do not have a job, my town is dying, etc., etc. How does this president, does this administration help to write that in a sensible way? Doug, go. It will only happen if the lawmakers in Congress stand up and actually look at what's going on, because unfortunately what we are seeing is by executive order, by malfeasance in some cases, by literally disregarding the requirements of the law, the current administration is not doing what the law requires. And what's going to happen in some places, it's already being seen. These towns that were supposedly going to be helped by Trump are going to be hurt. People are going to lose their health care if they haven't already. They're going to lose their jobs. They're losing their right to sue if they are discriminated against, all the basic things that help keep that safety net intact are being dismantled. Oh, that's that. That's but that's a bad word, though, isn't it? If you if you if you're if you're Trumpian, no such thing as a safety net. You know, you you have you're the power of your own agency, and and I, and I think ultimately, fundamentally, that is uh, the reason why um, at least people from our side of the 
of the aisle politically do not understand that side. Because I, I, I'm a free market person. I am a I'm an absolute capitalist. I believe in you know the power of business to do good. But I also believe that there has to be a foundation of ground rules that everybody follows. Mm-hmm. And what's happening is that the Justice Department, for example, is taking away mechanisms for people to protect themselves when something goes wrong. Look at what they've done for senior citizens in nursing homes. Uh, under the Obama administration, they took enforcement action so that um, if if you have a dispute with a nursing home, you couldn't be forced to go to arbitration. You could actually sue if something bad happened. And but that's the sh- but but Doug, that's the shackling big business. That's the shackling the engine of the economy. But if you have substantial evidence of malfeasance by business, there have to be ways to protect against that. We shouldn't be allowing a return to the days of sweatshops and abuse of workers and blatant discrimination. Oh no, no, that that's good. That's good, honest work. You know, if we just remove some of the regulation, it means that business can create more jobs. Some of them might be might be lower pay, low lower paying, but then there'll be more jobs, and it's good, honest toil. That's what this uh, Protestant Christian country has been built on. If the data supported that as fact, I would agree with you. Unfortunately, it doesn't. And in fact, if you look at places where you have a good minimum wage, where you have good worker protections, you have decent consumer protections, you actually have a Socialism, don't talk about Scandinavia. That's socialism. That's anti-American. I'm talking about San Francisco. When San Francisco raised the minimum wage, uh, Mm. one of the... You know, one of the sectors that said they were going to be destroyed was tourism and travel. Well, you know what? When they had to raise the minimum wage of workers at San Francisco Airport to twelve dollars an hour, yes, it was a little bit harder to get people um, into some of those jobs because the requirements were harder. But San Francisco Airport started running better, and tourism has gone up since the minimum wage went up. Healthier people because of healthcare access means less hospital cost. It's not socialism. It's good business. I think, Doug, um, you raised an interesting point about San Francisco. And I was actually listening to a a podcast I I, I used to edit, um, a thing called Skylines yesterday. And... Oh, that sounds good. What's that? Yeah, yeah. It's it's done done by this, uh, this... this person, I, person I, I used to like in, in London, and now uh, John. One of one of one of the many things that John does is, is this kind of uh, urbanist podcast, and uh, using San Francisco as an example of uh, capital and regulation working seamlessly um, is an interesting one, because what there is over here is. Um, an urb, uh, there's a crisis of urbanism which is all about success about the fact that the knowledge economy has hit san francisco big time in the last 20 years because silicon valley is just down the road which has actually meant that there is actually um more homelessness here that at, at, the, at the one end of the economy people are doing disproportionately well but it's squeezing working families um at the other and the, and and one of the solutions for the future 
is actually to take more power actually from the centre, from Washington, from from London, and actually give it more to cities so they can actually look at their own kind of local problems, whether it's to do with housing and transport, um, and to give people um, at the, the lower wage end of things a better access to jobs and opportunity but also to housing and i just think uh, doug it's a really interesting example because in lots of ways um it's the reason why i i'm in san francisco because i love the place and i love the liberalism of it but also in a very small measure i'm um, actually part of the problem you know that that i'm that i'm helping to displace families that have been here for, for generations but we've moved some way off of talking um about donald day trump and his beef with senator bob corker but as john says um trump and brexit have dominated this podcast like like nothing in in its uh, four-year history so we're going to move on now and it's going to be our takeaways of the week all right takeaways of the week gentlemen um, you are forbidden from talking about politics. It has to be something philosophical, something aspirational or something that you watched on Netflix. Uh, Doug Levy over in the North Bay. What's been your takeaway of the last seven days? Well, I think if if we don't learn a lesson from the wildfire storm, uh, we are doomed to repeat it. So wherever you are, whatever natural disaster or other emergency might be, a threat to you at any time in the future, please make sure you have an emergency plan for yourself, for your family, for your co-workers. Make sure you've got supplies and know what you're going to do before you have to actually do it, please. Was that directed at Theresa May and her government vis-a-vis Brexit? <laughs> you have to have a plan. <laughs> All right, John Elledge over in a damp grey London. What's okay. been your takeaway? Um, I'm... It's, it's miserable out. It's miserable inside as I my head. It's a bloody miserable place to be. We're all doomed. And next week is my birthday. I'm <laughs> edging ever closer to middle age. So this is a long way around of saying that I'm really enjoying watching Bojack Horseman on Netflix at the moment. Because that's, a, that's, that's, huh. a, that's a, a, a funny show about depression and the descent into middle age. So, yeah, I would recommend it. Cool. Um, mine, very quickly, isn't necessarily a million miles away from Doug's but 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 actually is but um I saw an amazing sunset uh four five days ago and it was probably probably to do sorry I just love the fact that I talk about how bloody depressed I am and you go I saw this amazing sunset well yeah but that amazing sunset was probably brought on by the by the uh, the fires in uh, northern California um and it's only subsequently a couple of days afterwards i thought why was that sun so amazing but let's let's say that it wasn't it was just pure happenstance right but what but what it taught me was just to be still and to appreciate the scenery around us as hippie as that sounds i think we all rush hither and dither 24 7 uh we're on social media uh, wor- worrying why is it that this great tweet I've written that had, doesn't have more retweets why doesn't it have more likes etc but actually uh, we live in a beautiful world and we and we need to make sure that we conserve it and that it's there uh, for the little ones um, you know we've got, to, we've got to pass it on and just seeing that sun which was orange and purple and that 
beautiful blue sky it just get just made me to stop there was no instagram filter on it it was just real and it was just lovely there you go that's my takeaway um well that that's my job your, it's your job on this podcast john to be miserable Doug, somewhat, you know, pragmatic in the middle, and I'm always upbeat. I'm always like, no, 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 things are going to be all right. That's the reason why we work well together. That has been Mid-Atlantic this week. Um, Next week, we'll have um, another one of our one-off specials. But just before we go, John Elledge, what are you up to at the moment? How can people find on social media you should uh, you should check out the very fine skylines podcast in which they talk to all sorts of exciting people about cities uh, I can yeah, highly or, or you could just find me on twitter where i'm at john edge j-o-n-e-l-l-e-d-g mr doug levy how about you sir i've got some interesting stories that i'm working on that are not yet ready for publication but stay tuned Ooh, and uh where can people find you on social media? What's your Twitter handle, sir? My Twitter handle is at SFDoug. Awesome. You can find me where I'm at Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D, on the Twitters. Uh, you can find uh, Mid-Atlantic Show, where I infrequently put out a tweet, but we are at Mid-Atlantic Show. Uh, find out with the progress of the show on Facebook, where we are Mid-Atlantic Show on the Book of Face. Um we are getting um, an, a nice little trickle of emails. Thank you for sending those in, in to us. You can email the show where I'm royfield at gmail.com. Um, there is the red tab, which uh, people used, used to click many moons ago. If you go to midatlanticshow.com, you can actually voice a reply to any of the crazy utterings that us three bunch of progressive liberals have spouted on this show. See you all again in approximately 14 days time. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.